All right, awesome. So a fun one today. Jacques Derrida's Structure, Sign, and Play in the Discourses of the Human Sciences is the full title. Uh, obviously, the title I put on here is abbreviated because it's just long, and most people, I think, know it as just Structure, Sign, and Play. But it is important to keep in mind that the human sciences play some kind of role here, and we're going to get to that and see why it makes sense. But before we hop into it, a few things to say. Find me on Instagram at theory underscore and underscore philosophy, a lot of underscores, uh, for pictures of my cats, mostly. Um, also, Patreon for anyone that's interested in contributing to that. That would be great. Uh, and if not, there are some funny goals I set out that I think would give you a chuckle if you want to go look at them. Uh, and also, this can be found on Podbean or iTunes or I think pretty well anywhere else that you find your uh, podcasts, which would make this probably the best way to listen to it. And yeah, that's about it. So something else to say before kind of getting into the text itself uh, is that this was given as a conference talk in the mid-60s, I think it was the 66. And I, I heard once, and I, I should look it up to see if it's really true, but I heard once that Derrida actually wasn't meant to attend this and that one of the organizers um, needed someone to fill in and thought, oh, well, I've heard of this Derrida guy. Uh, he, he might be willing to do it. Maybe we should, you know, invite him out to give this little talk, you know, little probably half an hour long talk. And he did, and it, it blew apart what we know to be structuralism. Now, I think it would be good to lay out some of the basic terms before jumping into this text. Because if I just go through it and just kind of explain the way that Derrida does, some people might feel lost, which wouldn't at all be surprising because it's a difficult text, and Derrida's a difficult thinker and a difficult writer to kind of enter into. So the first thing I want to mention is the idea of structuralism. So structuralism, really taken from its title, is the idea, to put it very broadly, that what underrides all culture, all ideas, can be traced to fundamental structures that can eventually point to an overarching single structure that can tell us something fundamentally true about society or people. So some examples would be like uh, the archetypes, you know, in, in like literary studies that ostensibly suggest that there are just a few ways of being and that all people, although they might, you know, derive from or vary or, I guess, diverge from the path a little bit, can always be traced to these archetypes, these kinds of structures. And the other thing that I think is important to mention before getting into the text is that Derrida spends a lot of his time talking about an anthropologist, a French anthropologist named uh, Claude Lévi-Strauss. So Lévi-Strauss is a pretty important figure because he kind of set the tone for what would be understood as structuralism. And what that meant really broadly for Lévi-Strauss was that through language, we can uncover various consistencies about all people in many different settings. Now, Lévi-Strauss was not nearly as neat as that in that he did question that to some extent, and we'll get into that in this text, but it's just important to set that out so when he comes up, it's not a surprise, or you'll have an idea about what we're going to do with it. So as for the text itself, Derrida starts out by cautioning against the idea that what he's about to describe comes about as an event or as a moment. So this shift, which is often 
labeled quite colloquially or, or kind of vulgarly as the transition from structuralism to post-structuralism. Derrida wants to warn us that this doesn't just happen in an instance. So it can't be reduced to an event, to an author, but is instead, in his words, kind of the condition of our era. Now there's some interesting implications of this, and we'll get into that a little bit later, but for now it begs the question, how much about what we know of structuralism, and how much of what Derrida critiques of it, or kind of points to the limits of it with what we're going to do, is actually localizable to a single era, to a single kind of episteme? Cannot what Derrida says be applied to all cultures to some extent and to all movements throughout history? But that's just kind of a preliminary question to set some kind of a stage. And from here, we'll keep going. So in opposition to the idea of an event, he wants to propose the idea of a rupture or a redoubling. Now, rupture and redoubling are not synonyms. Those are very two very different things, but it will come to make sense. And the reason he does this, that he doesn't want to use the word event, is that that would imply that there's a kind of solid point that, with a kind of enough theoretical, enough speculative, enough maybe archaeological uh, rigor, can be unearthed. And he wants to discourage us from thinking that, because that would essentially reduce, it would limit what it can be, what the event can be. So now we are confronted with this thing called structure, which he locates alongside the development of Western science and Western philosophy. And it has very much in the same way as ascribing an event with a certain point or status. And it has by being assumed with a kind of center point as having a kind of finite event or finite point in itself that can be unearthed. So any structure, supposedly, was would kind of wrap itself around a single idea, a single point, a single thing that would essentially give it its meaning. So with enough, you know, rigor, the truth of a thing, the truth of a structure could be revealed. So the point of this idea of the center was to limit the free play of the structure itself. So if you have a structure, the example I like to think of as a sandbox, if you have a sandbox to a child or to whoever else is playing in it, the possibilities are endless with what one can do with sand. Maybe we'll add water in there just for the sake of you know the illustration. The, the, the possibilities are ostensibly endless. Now, that doesn't mean that the possibilities for the sandbox are endless. In fact, the sandbox remains a sandbox, no matter what kind of creative genius is happening within it. And at any point that the creative genius calls attention to or disturbs what it means for the sandbox to be a sandbox, then it ceases to be a sandbox and all the properties within it, all of the things possibly created by it, then also in some, to some extent cease to exist because they are no longer associated with that thing that was supposed to galvanize them, kind of bring them all together under the banner of, you know, the sandbox. So the structure itself, in this case the sandbox, is limited, whereas there is allowed some kind of movement within it. 
So Derrida says, is that really what is going on? You know, to give you an idea, is that is that really how structure is, how it functions? So he takes this, well, this is kind of what he does throughout the whole essay, is explain that maybe that isn't quite the case. Because interestingly, he says that the center both belongs to the structure and exists outside of it. Because the center is what gives possibility to the structure, but it, it is yet also the thing that must then come from outside of it. So it gives it its possibility, but then can ostensibly move somewhere else. So in his words, he says that it is at the center of a totality, that is, the center is at the center of a totality, but since the center does not belong to the totality, the totality loses its center elsewhere. Or sorry, it has its center elsewhere. Sorry. So because the center can apparently move around, it is kind of given a little bit of a, a free playedness. Then it calls into question the extent to which the center actually embodies the same thing as the structure. So we've already established that the structure isn't allowed to move. But the center upon which it is predicated is allowed to move. It floats between things. It gives different things different meanings. So let's think about this a little bit more in terms of the sandbox. So what would be the center of the sandbox? If the structure is the sand coupled with, you know, pieces of wood, then that structure is unable to move. If any one of those parts are taken out, it ceases to be what it is. So then it demands an investigation into what the thing is. That, that is the, the structure. That, sorry, the center, the thing that is allowed to then move from place to place. And that's where it gets rather abstract, especially in the case of the sandbox. We might say it is, you know, uh, a, a place of joy. And it is structuring around the idea of joy for children, let's say, uh, that gives the sandbox its character. But that idea of joyness is by no means reserved for the sandbox. It can move somewhere else. Now, really hardcore readers of Derrida might be, you know, scratching their heads at my example, and it's really meant to give or be the most kind of rudimentary way to describe what's going on here, because the implications of this extend far uh, deeper, especially when we consider things like God or like humans or justice. So around the idea of God, for example, sprouts a whole slew of different things that if God taken in different contexts, different settings, moved around, can then give birth to a whole bunch of different things that are believed to be solid in that kind of moment, which, which then through the structuralist uh, gaze can be unearthed, uncovered, traced back to this God thing, this God structure that exists across time and space. And as long as there persists the idea of this center, this supposed center that can move and that gives possibility to structure, as long as that can be a, uh, is believed in, then anything that seeks to try to find this center, to kind of find this truth, is complicit in the very belief of structure itself. And this has been what is dominated, right, in the domains of structuralism. So he says that then the history of the study of structure is a study of this center that is constantly moving around, trying to find new places that it can then create these structures over and over again. But because examples can never really be fully um, exercised, can, can be fully worn out, let's consider another one.
So one way I like to think about structuralism, especially in relation to post-structuralism, is with fairy tales. So for a long time in this kind of structuralist period, there was a belief that the study of fairy tales revealed basic fundamental archetypes, as I've already mentioned, or kind of truths of human interaction uh, across cultures. So as people were, you know, exploring the world, they found that there were like Red Riding Hood tales all over. There are tales of a kind of Cinderella type thing everywhere. So that was, in a sense, the kind of moment for structuralists to say, oh, wow, look, look, we now have all of these kind of fundamental pieces of evidence, these structures that we're seeing everywhere. Let us find out from whence they've come. Is it a kind of truth to human interaction? Uh, as it turns out, it wasn't. You know, it just came about through colonialism. So this is the what would be the kind of post-structuralist response and saying like, yeah, there is a kind of similarity across cultures, but this can be traced to a very direct, specific movement, one that, you know, Foucault would be interested in. But structuralism always tries to find this kind of pure point, this kind of fixed origin, or an emphasis on presence, a kind of real thing that can be seen and experienced. So as such, this history, that is the history of um, the, the investigation of structures is an investigation to the metaphysics of presence. And that overall, what we can learn from this obsession of, on the part of structuralists is that there is an obsession with finding like this quote-unquote truth of the thing, which is what Derrida finds extremely interesting. And he even goes so far to say as the, that the very history of metaphysics is the history of these metaphors and metonymies, that is, these movements of various things that, you know, change across time and space or take on different meanings, different forms, different metaphors, different metonymies, yet can still be kind of traced to these truths that we arrive at. You know, the metaphysical mind is one that sits alone in a chair and tries to think beyond experience, beyond the material world, to think of these truths that exist outside of the, the kind of messy physical ground. So what Derrida is trying to do then is call attention to the structure that gives weight to structure itself. So why are we obsessed with structure? What kind of forces, desires, motivations, motivates our, motivates our, uh, influences our obsession with structure? And that this is fundamentally for him, in his words, the law which governed the desire for the center. Now, in many ways, this can encapsulate the entire spectrum of quote-unquote post-structuralist thinkers, where for Baudrillard, it was a matter of, you know, discovering the kind of simulacral effect, that is the, the veil of the simulacrum and what it covers, if it covers anything. For Foucault, it was the way that power influences various ways of understanding the world, and so on and so forth. Now, this awareness of this structure of structure, this kind of like structuralism taken to the second degree, that is one that then turned back upon the structure of itself, became aware of the possible or the fact that the center we have described, that is the center that belongs to structure, is always outside of itself. 
right, which we've already established. That's what structuralism has kind of come to do. And it should also be said that I, I don't think that in this text Derrida was necessarily trying to do away with structuralism. It, it, it was an unintended consequence. I think he was trying to keep applying it to new things. So even if we think of the term post-structuralism, that term doesn't necessarily imply uh, an end to structuralism. It implies taking what we want from structuralism and applying it to something else in a kind of teleological way, like a moving forward with the tools we've garnered. So he locates this kind of new move of structuralism with a kind of discursive regimen. So this was the, when it was accepted that the, um, the center is never absolutely present outside of a system of differences. So for those who might already have a kind of cursory understanding of Derrida's work, this is a pretty important idea. And it's one that assumes the form of différence. So différence is a, a play on the idea of being different and to defer. So the idea is that no one thing can be defined in isolation. Everything is defined in relation to other things. And this relates to a quote that he uses from Levi-Strauss, where Levi-Strauss says that language must have emerged with one fell swoop, because the idea that language emerged like one word at a time is kind of strange. Like, try to imagine what that might have been like at the dawn of humanity or the dawn of language. How would any word have been ascribed to a thing without having, uh, you know, a kind of vocabulary to draw upon or an alphabet to draw upon or anything like that. So it must have happened rather quickly where it kind of all fell together. So it's in that way that this idea of the center is not nearly as neat as perhaps once assumed. And that the center, if we assume it in a discursive way, can only be defined by its relationship to other things. So we know that the word D-O-G corresponds to dog, you know, the animal that we all know and love. But we don't know that, like, from birth. We aren't born knowing what D-O-G means, let alone what dog is, that is, the, the vocal word being spoken, or even if we see a picture of it, that it is associated with this living thing out in the world. It is only when we, have, we are able to position that word, that idea, that image, against other ones that we've learned are not it, that we can actually craft out a space in which the dog might exist as a, you know, linguistic thing. So while Derrida, to kind of move on here, while Derrida is not really concerned with tracing this to a single point, because that would, you know, reinscribe the center with a certain status, he is willing to say that there are a few figures that certainly participated in its undoing, or that is opening it up, opening up structure. And those figures were Nietzsche and Heidegger and uh, Freud, who all to some extent sought to critique metaphysics. So in the case of Freud, when you had the idea of the conscious, that is the thing that thinks in the world or in the, in the brain that kind of moves beyond the world, that is supplanted, that is kind of critiqued with the idea of the unconscious, that is what we cannot see, what we cannot hear, yet that is still there. And then uh, he kind of recounts the critique that Heidegger levels against 
Nietzsche for really just being, you know, the last Platonist, quote unquote, or to be, you know, the last metaphysician, someone committed to, you know, nothing really important. Now, each of these thinkers are ostensibly participating in the end of metaphysics, the end of this search for these, you know, truths that exist out there. Yet Derrida says, or he wonders, if it's really possible to do away with this idea of structure, this idea of metaphysics, if we have garnered our very language from that approach, which he said at the beginning, where he said that structure is actually associated with associated with the development of Western science and Western philosophy, and metaphysics is, is a part of that. So he says, if it is actually possible to use the tools of metaphysics to undo metaphysics. So, for example, he says that the idea of the sign, so the sign that stands in for something else, like roses standing in for love, or something like that, or love standing in for roses, whatever. Uh, he says that the sign was meant to, or perhaps wasn't designed to do this, but it could be interpreted to have been intended to kind of uh, make presence not nearly as important as it once was. So the sign could stand in for the real thing. We exist as linguistic beings in that we, we don't carry around like pictures of the things we want to talk about. If I want to talk about a tree, I don't carry a picture of a tree and point to it to designate to the person I'm talking to that, you know, I want them to know what I'm talking about, that is tree. I just have this word that makes it very easy to understand what, you know, we're talking about, in that the word stands in for the thing. So Derrida says that it could be understood that the sign stood in for presence. But he's, he asks, is that really possible? Because if you dissociate the sign from presence, then what are you left with? In Kant's words, you would be left with a kind of empty concept. That is, you'd be left with a thing that somehow precedes or transcends experience, which Kant would be very suspicious about. And what is more, where the present, where presence would have been given a kind of uh, superior status, a kind of more weight than the sign because of its status as presence. In order to undo that, we all we would need to do is ascribe the sign with that same status, which Derrida then says, well, pump the brakes. All you are doing is replicating the exact same system that you are trying to undo by privileging presence. And that for any kind of productive critique to be mounted, we would have to do away with the sign altogether. And that this sets up his critique, his kind of the beginning of his critique of Levi-Strauss, who he says tried to do that. He says that Levi-Strauss tried to use the sign to move beyond the split between the sensible and the intelligible, because the sign for Levi-Strauss could apparently, you know, transcend that. But as we've already established, the sign is what depends most upon these uh, binaries, upon these splits. The sign knows itself to be a sign of something because it is not another thing, because it is not this other thing or whatever, so on and so forth. And we would do well to add and to remind ourselves that this creation of this supposed exterior uh, component, that is the sign, that is supposed to oppose the binary present 
here between the sensible and the intelligible uh, is then just participating in that in more of that construction generating more of a binary so that what does that mean then for the human scientist because that's what the title takes on well Derrida says that uh, the birth of ethnology which is you know the study of humans human society human organization uh, the birth of ethnology might appear at first glance to be something that troubles something like Eurocentrism because suddenly you know the category of human is being split up we are be we are able to recognize that there are differences and that these differences are constituted by their being not the same as you know the European ethnologist but Derrida casts a suspicious eye asking whether or not that is really the case if it continually reinscribes the split between, you know, the Eurocentric Cartesian figure and the quote-unquote other. And we see this quite prominently in the kind of ethnology present in Levi-Strauss again, where Levi-Strauss tries to undo or understand the split once assumed between nature and culture, or that's very much still assumed. Where Levi-Strauss found that there was uh, a troubled point in that split. So between nature and culture, it was assumed that nature was universal. So, th so things that belong to nature belong to everyone. Like, I don't know, we all need to eat, we all need to um, sleep, we all need to, you know, uh, have some basic form of hygiene, so on and so forth. While with culture, that could be given over to various social norms things that were specific to specific locations. Now he says that there's one thing that troubles that split, and that is for him incest prohibition. So incest prohibition is the prohibition upon incest, but he says that it is found in both nature and culture, where it is expelled from both. Therefore, it is kind of universal across both boundaries, so then it begs the question, is it that there is something within nature that is both found in culture, also found in culture that is also universal? Or, and this is where Derrida intervenes, Derrida asks, does this prohibition actually give possibility to the split between nature and culture? Because it is what bridges, it, it is what is a part of both. So does this thing, this prohibition, actually, by virtue of it being different from the binary opposition we have with nature and culture, actually birth it, because it has elements of both within it. And, I should add, that Derrida doesn't find it really revolutionary to think that this prohibition actually does away with the binary if we assume right off the bat that the binary doesn't really exist, that there isn't a split between nature and culture and that this prohibition only gains a certain traction if we assume, if we've already assumed in advance, that this binary exists. So although Derrida takes aim at Levi-Strauss, he sees some kind of benefit to this, in that Levi-Strauss recognizes that there is a way outside of these binaries. There is a way to ostensibly get outside of the logic that we are meshed in to critique that very logic, that is the logic of nature and culture. Now, uh, Derrida says that that's one way to do it, uh, to criticize philosophy, and that is called more generally, or kind of um, 
described as pointing to the limit of any given concepts, in this case, nature and culture. But he says the, and, and he says that there's another way, and that is the way of uh, looking at the history of concepts to find their kind of point from which they originate to, you know, point to limits there. But he's more interested in the first one I just described here, that is getting outside of that logic to point to the limits of it. And that there is a kind of benefit not to opposing structure in this way, not to saying that underneath structure is a, the kind of truth of the thing, but by using the very thing found in structure to criticize it, to oppose it. So, this is the text in which deconstruction kind of first enters the stage, but he doesn't really lay out what it is. And a lot of people get it wrong, or many people get it wrong. Uh, and I think, I think I get it. Uh, deconstruction is when you posit, let's say you have a binary. Okay, you have a binary. The binary is hot and cold. Deconstruction doesn't just, you know, question what, you know, hotness is or what coldness is or like deconstruction, and maybe in the case of gender, doesn't just undo gender or the gender binary, for example. What it does is it shows the extent to which either side of the binary, in this case hot and cold, actually depend upon the other to designate them. So how do I know it's hot? That is, I know it's hot because it is not cold. How do I know what hot is unless I have a measurement of coldness from which to compare it? So for someone in Canada, for instance, having it be, you know, 10 or 11 degrees in January might be pretty hot, whereas someone in, you know, Florida, that'd be freezing cold. So these terms are relative in some way. But we must recognize that the only way we have any purchase on what either is, is by knowing what the other is as well. So in that way, neither of the terms can exist on their own outside of the binary. And that by deconstructing it, showing that, then the binary to some extent falls apart. Because we see how they are kind of, um, they develop upon one another. So in the case of the nature-culture split, Derrida focuses on Levi-Strauss's discovery of what's consistent between the two, showing that their difference is not nearly as permanent as we'd like to think, and it is that that gives it a kind of new power. So we maintain this kind of structure, but now the structure, not just this center, the structure itself starts to have a kind of movement. The structure itself starts to get um, take a new form, start, starts to come out of its shell, but there's still more to say now in terms, uh, in relation to Levi-Strauss before kind of concluding this here. So he says that Levi-Strauss makes good use of this idea of the of bricolage or bricolage or the bricoleur. The bricoleur is someone who makes use of anything that is made available to them. So whatever is at their immediate disposal, they can make a tool out of. And that tool might completely go against the way that it was meant to be used. So, who decides how it's meant to be used? Let's say there is a creator. In this case, he uses the example of an engineer. So an engineer makes a hammer, uh, which is meant to hit things. Uh, you know, hammer a nail in, or something. But if you are a bricoleur, you might use a hammer for a whole slew of different things. It might be a doorstop. It might be used to, you know, hold the door open. You might use it as a shoehorn. I have no idea. 
you know, the possibilities are endless. So the structured thing that we are confronted with here, this hammer that is the, um, kind of given a face or given a structure by this center, that is the engineer, is called into question. And by virtue of that, the very engineer is called into question. But you can see here how we've just, to undo this, this structure, to kind of open up a new play, we've had to inscribe this new split, that is the split between the bricoleur and the engineer. So we, this new split between the bricoleur and between the engineer. And it is that that we can open up this whole new discussion of the limits of each, interestingly. So we aren't necessarily trying to do away with structure, but we're trying to find a way to enter play into that structure. And it shows us then in this example between the bricoleur and the engineer, that the bricoleur, if the bricoleur truly exists, that is someone that just uses any tool at their disposal, then the engineer is no different because they are doing the exact same thing. So we've now seen what is common between them and let's in some way explode that binary distinction to present a new one and then blow that one up and present a new one. It's a kind of dialectical thing, of course, but the two uh, conflicting terms, the thesis and the antithesis, don't come to their own resolution. Like this demands the deconstructive intervention to point to their limits. So if we've established now that the bricoleur is someone that gives a kind of essence to the engineer. That is, the bricoleur is from where the engineer is birthed, which might seem like the opposite operation that we've set up so far. But if we accept that the bricoleur and the engineer are part and parcel the same thing, and that an engineer, although we've said so far that the engineer creates things, it could be God, it created the world, it is actually a bricoleur because it is just doing what we've already established the bricoleur to do. So it is just another bricoleur. And in that way, because it comes before, it is kind of outside of the domain of presence, immediate presence, I should say, then it takes on a kind of mythic quality in this example. So this is a kind of mythological um, investigation now, looking at this myth. And this myth sees the kind of structure at hand. It doesn't try to, and this is what uh, Derrida describes, or sorry, what Levi-Strauss describes, it disturbs the kind of Cartesian approach that tries to divide the difficulty into as many parts as necessary. The mythological approach sees things totally instead. It sees them as structure. And the myth then, because it is mythic, is devoid of both subject and author. It is always moving. It is always in play. So Levi-Strauss makes this point then to say that, hey, we don't know about this thing out there. And he, Derrida provides some very long uh, quotes from him here, and he describes um, the impossibility of understanding all myths in a culture, because you can't, uh, you can't catalog all the myths ever. That would be impossible. And you can't assume that you can just keep collecting them to expand your knowledge because that second one implies that it is infinite, always changing. And the first one, the fact that a totalization of myths is impossible, implies that exactly that, its totality is impossible, and it is always then being negotiated, being under or, or changing. And it is this mythic process that reveals the extent to which the philosophical and epistemological need for a center 
is itself a myth. Now, in response to this, and this is where Derrida, I think, kind of applauds Levi-Strauss, Levi-Strauss sees in his own work the doing of myths. He sees his work as a kind of mythological thing. He's studying myths, but he tries to make his work as mythical as possible. Now, what that does is it affirms what I've been saying so far, that to oppose the thing doesn't demand, you know, somehow stepping outside of it, because Derrida says that's impossible, right? That's why Heidegger, Nietzsche, uh, Freud kind of failed at doing that for him. Instead, we must understand we are always already within it. And it would be silly to say that there's this kind of totalized structure that we can recognize that has a center that moves around and floats that we can get to the kind of base of through the structure. And instead, we must assume that this structure is always already moving. It's kind of like... Um, like a sci-fi film, like when a brain is depicted in a kind of um, singularity-type state, you know, how things are coming out of it and it's moving around and, and grasping into different spaces in air and, and folding in on itself. It doesn't have a shape. So there are then only free-floating significations that we are dealing with here. And, sig and these significations uh, free-float, and they permeate, they intensify, their production intensifies when we've understood, come to, the, come to the understanding, that there is not that transcendent center that grounds it all, that we can unearth. And we are then forced to kind of compensate, to make up for that by proliferating, by extending our significatory capacity to make up for it. So of the structure, it shouldn't be assumed then of having no center. It should be assumed, and this is the distinction he makes right at the end, uh, as being non-center. So this is kind of like what Larwell does with non-philosophy. He's not opposing philosophy. He's saying that we have to take you know these elements of philosophy that can make it uh, turn in on itself to open up this new you know possibility. So structure must do the same thing. It must embrace this non-center that still maintains the idea of center that we've already established, that is the free-floating, playing enterprise, and recognize that structure does not oppose play, but structure is very much a part of it. So that, in a, in a nutshell, kind of captures the essence of this text, but I want to mention a couple, maybe one more thing. How do we necessarily recognize that this is a new thing? When Derrida describes this, he says that it, is, it comes down to our era. It is something that belongs to us to some extent. Whereas, I don't know when this wouldn't be the case. As soon as language entered the scene, it would seem as though there's a kind of um, compensation happening, a making up for what is you cannot say with language. So you introduce new language, you introduce more language to try to encapsulate what you know, can't be said with language. So, and this is the question I'm asking you, if anyone happens to know, what is it about this age, this era, that is actually different from any previous one that gives Derrida this kind of right to say, this is a new thing, quote unquote, new thing? But yeah, anyways, that's that. If you listened this far, cool, I applaud you. Um, and if you have any questions, you know how to leave it. Take care.